1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Drugs, Addiction, and Recovery, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Emily Dufton, and today I'm really excited to talk to Donovan X. Ramsey, author of When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. Donovan is a journalist, author, and an indispensable voice on issues of identity, justice, and patterns of power in America. His reporting has appeared in The New York Times, The Atlantic, GQ, Wall Street Journal Magazine, Ebony, and Essence, among a host of other outlets, and he's worked at such venerable newsrooms as the Los Angeles Times and The Marshall Project. A native of Columbus, Ohio, where he first saw the crack epidemic firsthand, Donovan now lives in LA. When Crack Was King, which just got released to great acclaim a few weeks ago, is his first book. Donovan, welcome to the show.
2: Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for having me.
0: So this might be a, a weird thing to lead with, but I've been following your work for some time. I've, I've a little bit been stalking you because um, <laughs> I first heard about your project a few years ago through the Open Society Foundations, which I know supported your writing with a grant, which is great. Congrats. Writing grants Thank are wonderful. Um, but the first thing I thought was, yes, finally, a history of the crack era, right? We need this because as you say in your subtitle, it's such a misunderstood era. So that's my first question for you. Why is that? Why don't we understand crack?
2: Hmm, That's a really big question. I mean, I think that um, that addiction is such a complex issue. And I think that when you factor in Everything that was going on in society in the 1980s and 1990s um, in the ways also then that, you know, uh, crack addiction became racialized. It just created all of these layers of myth and stereotype and misunderstanding that I think really um, created barriers between the average person and the truth. Um, You know, most people I don't think even know what crack is. So that's why I had to write this book, because, you know, that period affected um, so many people's lives and continues to affect people's lives through through policy. But most of us really didn't understand what happened or why it happened.
0: Right, right. I love that, the the difference between truth and reality, not the truth, uh, or perception and reality, I suppose. One of the things I noticed about um, your book and about the crack era as a whole is that as you say, drug epidemics come and go, but this one felt kind of like the high of crack, like kind of fast, like quick, quick and dirty, as opposed to the ongoing opioid epidemic, which has lasted over 30 years now and uh, cannabis use, which now stretches back 50, 60 years. Crack was a kind of like a brief, very powerful and very specific time. Can you talk a little bit about crack's debut and and what made it disappear? I mean, it doesn't disappear, but what it kind of made the era come to an end?
2: Sure. Well, you know, crack really kind of rises to prominence in the early 1980s, uh, 1983 being, I think, a really big kind of tipping off point. It's uh, originally called free base, which is a chemistry term that um, means to free the base of an element from it. You know, it's, I mean, I'm sorry, to, to free the base of a compound from its other elements. Um, and it kind of just explodes from Um, The West Coast, Oakland and Los Angeles into the rest of the country. And by 1987, crack is really at its peak with uh, most major cities having um, some level of a crack epidemic. And then it continues uh, with really high rates of use into about 1992 and then completely plummets from there. Um, And, you know, the crack epidemic, um, folks are reluctant to say that it's over but the majority of people using crack today are a part of that first cohort of users Isn't that um
0: incredible? yeah
2: yeah that the epidemic you know according to the folks that study it there's some great research done by the department of justice their bureau of justice statistics where they tried to answer that question why did the crack epidemic end and what they found is that um, there wasn't another cohort of users that wanted to take it up And that it was young people, young black and Latino folks in neighborhoods that were hard hit in particular who um, really swore off of hard drug use for for about a generation or so. And for that reason, um, you know, you see marijuana use skyrocketing in 1992, the same year that crack really starts to plummet.
0: Isn't that amazing? Rick Curtis, who is uh, at uh, John Jay College, um, he studied that and said that uh, he called it the smarter younger brother syndrome, where younger, you know, like the younger generation would see the destruction the crack had caused and avoid it. And that turned to uh, marijuana instead. <clears throat> I love that section of your book. Can you talk a little bit about the influence of hip hop on both crack and marijuana use at this time?
2: You know, this is something that I kind of knew intuitively being a kid that grew up in a neighborhood that was that was hard hit by crack that, you know, a lot of us got our messaging, at least the most influential messaging from hip hop music. You know, it was a source that that we respected and trusted and the um Messaging as it related to drugs just was more honest and reflective of the world as we saw it than, say, you know, the Just Say No campaign or dare, um, where you had more realistic and human um, uh, narratives of drug dealers and drug users coming out of hip hop. And um, even though the hip hop of the period, the messaging was mixed, and I think really lacking as it related to um let's say its treatment of women that the messaging regarding drugs was pretty consistent in being anti-crack um, anti-crack and then later on pro-marijuana so um and that's something that was you know found in the research that um, uh, i i i can't think of the scholar now but they called it the blunt generation where you see this huge sort of explosion of references to marijuana and blunts in hip hop music. Um, I would say the zenith of that is probably Dr. Dre's the chronic, um, which is actually named for high grade marijuana. And he, on the cover art for the album is uh, pictured like the zigzag rolling papers. So On that album, you have simultaneously this kind of um, celebration of marijuana, but also real messaging about the devastation of crack in Black communities.
0: Right. That that devastation, I feel you capture so well in the individual stories you tell throughout the book. As, uh, as your subtitle says, this is a people's history. You're talking really about that one specific generation that was uh, hit so hard by Crack's uh, debut. Can you talk a little bit about the people's stories, who you feature in this book, and, and how and why you chose these four specific individuals?
2: I traveled the country in 2018 to the hardest hit cities um, to understand cracks, rise and fall as it was expressed in different localities, but also to understand how people experienced it. Um, When it comes to marginalized communities, people of color, poor people, um, addicts, that their stories are often told through statistics and from the perspectives of people in authority, but, you know, very rarely do we get to see or to read about um, their perspectives, our perspectives on, on these major events. And it seemed to me that I couldn't write a book or call something a history without having um, some view of it from the bottom up and not just the top down. So I interviewed hundreds of people, and I ultimately settled on um, four characters, we'll call them. um, Kurt Schmoke, who was mayor of Baltimore through that city's crack epidemic. Lenny Woodley, who was an addict for many decades um, uh, in South Central L.A., Um, a man named um, Elgin Swift, whose father was an addict, and then a man named Sean McRae, who was a drug dealer out of um, Newark, New Jersey. And he was a part of a pretty infamous crew called the Zoo Crew. And, you know, together, my, my hope was that we could get some significant perspectives on the epidemic as it was experienced in different cities and could walk away with sort of a, a more fully formed picture of what the crack epidemic was.
0: And you're really you're you're covering the country with it, and you're covering a variety of experiences. You're covering a variety of demographics uh, with these individuals. how How did you find them? and how did you choose them?
2: You know, it was it was really, really hard work, Emily. i um ultimately, it came down to the people that trusted me and were willing to share the the good and bad of their stories and that who believed that I would do their stories justice. Um, That was, I think the ultimate deciding factor that they more or less picked me. Um, I put out a few open calls via social media, um, every social media platform asking just for people who felt as though they had survived the period to reach out to me the majority of the responses I got were from the parents and children and friends of, um, folks that, that, that had addiction issues. Um, but also, you know, I, um, went to recovery groups and programs and put out the word that I was looking for, um, folks that had either sold or used drugs, um, Kurt Schmoke, who was mayor of Baltimore, I settled on him because he had a a unique perspective during the war on drugs, which is he argued that um, for a public health response instead of a criminal justice response. And this was as early as 1988. He was saying that we couldn't incarcerate our way out of um, the crack epidemic. So um, that was how I ultimately sort of arrived at the characters that I did. And, um, and I, and I love each of them, you know, I've, through, you know, hours and hours of interviewing, I uh, really have an appreciation for their different perspectives.
0: Hmm. What's their response to the book Ben,
2: You know, they love the book, um, which is, you know, really for me, the, the sort of greatest, uh, accomplishment of it is that, you know, um, in particular, Elgin Swift, whose you know father was an addict and who sold drugs for a short period in his life, um, Elgin has been able to, I think, understand some things about um, the way that he grew up a little bit better. Um, the same thing for Lenny Woodley, you know, who was addicted for crack for, I mean, to, who was addicted to crack for a few decades. Um, we've talked about her experience of you know having her story read back to her. And I think that, you know, storytelling is such an important uh, process, and it's a reason why it's um, built into so many recovery programs too, because you have to make sense of these events, that they exist in a context, that they happen to these people, really to an entire generation of people for reasons that are beyond just their individual choices, even though those, of course, play a factor. Um, and I think that um, that there's some peace, really, and some possibility for 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 healing when we do the work of um, figuring out why things happen, how they happen, separating fact from fiction, and you know, just trying to make sense of them.
0: Hmm. Do you do you feel like that's true for yourself as well. You said you were seeking out people to profile in this book who had survived the epidemic, who had survived the period. Did you survive the period? Is this also a story about your own story of survival?
2: It is. I became a character in the book um, through the process of writing it um, before I almost never wrote about myself. You know, as a journalist, that's the last thing that you want to do. Um, but a question that I got time and time again from, from people that I would talk to the book about was, why are you doing this? You know, why are you interested in this topic? And of course, you know, it's um, interesting to me as a sort of journalistic exercise, an opportunity to to tell stories that haven't been told well yet. Um, but I came to realize that my experience is growing up in a neighborhood that was hard hit by crack with, you know, addicts and dealers in my community, that those things, that those experiences stuck with me and that they gave me questions that that hadn't yet been resolved. And um, also, too, you know, impacted me in, in some pretty traumatic ways. You know, I can remember on many occasions, you know, gunshots ringing out, around dinner time, and my mom telling my sisters and I to just, you know, get on the floor until it was done. And then we get back up and sit down at the dining room table and continue to eat dinner. And, um, you know, or having my first bike stolen by someone that turned out to be a crack addict. Um, and how heartbroken I was and how my mom did her best at the time to explain to me why a grown man would do something like that. You know, my, um, my my front tire had gone out on my bike and I was afraid to go home and tell my mom because she had, you know, worked so hard to buy it for me. And, you know, man walked up and said, oh, you know, I can fix that for you. I'll just take it around the corner here. And he took it around the corner and I waited 10 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, and he never came back.
0: You poor thing.
2: <laughs> and, you know, I eventually had to walk home and, you know, explain it to my mom, you know, who then had to explain it to me and... And that stuff sticks with you. You know, it can make you afraid of your neighbors. It can make you um, just cautious of people generally. And, you know, writing this book
1: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
2: It worked a lot of that out for me. Um, I have to say though that it wasn't easy. That going through the process, I um, I got hives every time I would sit down to write, and I had um, heart palpitations for a period and had to wear a heart monitor. And I it took me a long time to put two and two together to understand what was happening to my body was that I was really metabolizing the information and, you know, my own trauma and other people's trauma. Um, and I came out on the end of it healthier, I, I like to think, and really hopeful that other people can have the opportunity to work through the trauma that they experienced during the period. Um, then, wow. Because I think a lot of us are, 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 are still dealing with it.
0: That is the most benevolent reason I've ever heard anyone write a book about crack. That's amazing. <laughs> uh, but I, I guess to kind of wrap up this conversation, what do we do with all of that information? What do we do with all that trauma? How do we make sense of this and, and what can we learn from this period?
2: You know, what I learned from the period is that um, human beings um, use substances in lots of different ways. Lots of different substances in lots of different ways. In that, um, you know, the substances that that we have identified as drugs um, will always be a part, I think, of of our lives um, in this society. In that, we have a responsibility to each other to keep each other safe, um, to keep each other healthy. And for me, when I look at the crack epidemic, I see a, a challenge for us to do that, that that we didn't meet, that we, instead of looking toward harm reduction, which I believe in deeply um, as a way of keeping people alive long enough for them to enter recovery, um, or instead of increasing recovery services in this country. We, um, criminalized addiction and we created this dragnet really because of lots of shame and fear and racism. And that's all that we have now. And we will, that we are continuing to deal with drug epidemics like the opioid epidemic. That I think that you know, as long as there are young people who are interested in experimenting with drugs, or as long as we have moments in society where people want to check out, that will always deal with drug epidemics. And what we should do is we should have something more than that dragnet. We should have programs that help people into recovery when they're ready, and harm reduction programs that keep them alive until they are, or That keep people alive until that cloud of disaffection passes, you know, that I saw in the 80s and that I think we see today in many parts of the country. Um, You know, that's what I took away from it, that that um, that drug epidemics are a symptom of really a greater sickness in our society and that we either have to cure that sickness, you know, or we have to create services to help people get well.
0: Amen. And, and, and couldn't we do the, and couldn't we do both of those things, right? Wouldn't that be ideal?
2: <laughs> I mean, especially if we were to take some of the money that we put into other, you know, options, um, uh, and, 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 and reroute them into something positive and actually helpful.
0: Right. 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 Well, I would like to put you in charge of, uh, all those political decisions. That would be, uh, <laughs> I think probably one of our better choices. Um, before I let you go, I'm going to ask our last question um, of, the, of the interview, which we do f- uh, for every interview. I'd like to know what you're working on now and what I'll be talking about with you
2: next. Mm-hmm. Well, I can't wait to talk to you again about um, a project that I'm working on about a woman named Janet Cook and a story that she wrote called Jimmy's World. Um, Janet Cook Uh, wrote this story in 1980 about a nine-year-old heroin addict in Washington, D.C. It was a very sensational story that turned out to be a complete fabrication. And I think it revealed a lot about the media's approach to addiction and to communities of color. Um, her, Her undoing was that she won the Pulitzer Prize for Jimmy's World. She became the first Black woman to ever win a Pulitzer Prize in journalism, and subsequently the only person to ever give a Pulitzer Prize back. Um, And this is a very important story for me as a Black journalist, but I think in this age of scamming and fake news and um, people's inability to understand really fact from fiction that unraveling how Jimmy's world happened is um, a really important thing to do. So that's the next project.
0: Well, I will be stalking you uh, for that one <laughs> because I'm thrilled that someone is finally writing about Janet Cooke and giving her really fascinating history its proper due. Um, Donovan Ramsey, author of When Crack Was King, A People's History of a Misunderstood Era. I could talk to you for hours. You are fascinating. Thank you so very much uh, for coming on the show today and for writing this book. It was so wonderful to talk to you.
2: I can't wait to be back and thank you for having me.